type one B, he would not need to have the same amount of strength, slow speed strength, to be explosive. Look at Kim Collins, for example. Uh, Kim Collins barely did any strength work, and he was a sub 10 second sprinter, uh, and he was like what a buck 54 or something like that. So no muscle mass on his body at all. Didn't need that much strength work. Uh, but you have sprinters like uh, a guy I trained with sometimes, like Bruni Surang. The, the Canadian uh, sprinter who was like 200 pounds ripped to shred and was super strong. That was coach Christian Thibodeau talking about individual factors in elite sprint athletes based off of neurotyping. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, Gym Aware, KBox, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments, allowing me to look at the 10 meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none. Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Strength coaches, track coaches, ladies and gents, we have an awesome episode for you today. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and you are listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. On the line is Christian Thibodeau. He is one of the uh, most renowned and foremost strength coaches in the industry. Uh, if you're familiar with T Nation, which is, I mean, unless you pretty much don't have the internet, you probably are familiar with T Nation. Uh, and Christian is often looked at as more of a bodybuilding type coach. I think that's some of the themes that are, are common on T Nation. But uh, the fact of the matter is he is very much a strength and power and athletic performance coach and a great one at that. And if you haven't read like his books like Theory and Application of Modern Strength and Power Methods, you're really missing out. I, I dug into that one this past year. Uh, and that was actually before I had even listened to the neurotyping, um, the, the neurotyping episodes like on Robbie Burke's podcast that really got me fired up. And w- one of the big themes we're going to be talking about or Christian's going to be sharing with us on this episode. But uh, Christian has some awesome material in strength and conditioning, uh, power development, explosiveness. And one of the biggest things that I've um, been intrigued by for really the last probably three years is that of the role, basically individuality. What makes one athlete different than another? What happens when you give a group of athletes a training program, 60 per- 60% of them thrive on it, 20% really thrive, and 20% don't do very well? <laughs> what were those factors that allowed for that? And and so it kind of all started back for which for me with Charles Poliquin's uh, The Five Chinese Elements 
uh, of fire, wood, earth, metal, and water. And with each element, he kind of tagged a type of athlete that fit that designation. And it, it, in a way, it almost went like fast twitch to slow twitch on the spectrum would be the easiest or simplest way to kind of describe it. Um, but that that really got my wheels turning. And and shortly thereafter, I I bought the Braverman, um, the Braverman book, the, the Edge Effect, and I made all my athletes or the, the majority, at least the post-collegiates and the Olympians do the Braverman test because I wanted to kind of see which made each of them tick and what their numbers were. And it was it was really intriguing for sure, no doubt. But I always felt like there was kind of something missing. Like I never could really put my finger on an athlete and say, okay, this is definitely what makes you tick in here. This is what I can see, uh, how I can kind of help or how I can look at your responses. And it makes sense based off what's on paper and how your neurochemistry is running. Uh, so fast forward about a year or a year and a half, I would say, and I'm listening to Robbie Burke's podcast with Christian and he's talking about his his neurotyping system that he's been designing and researching for a very long time and i'm listening to this and i'm just completely floored because it's like christian has filled in all these gaps that i i just didn't hadn't put together before and christian has five different types he's going to go in depth on those today not just on the types but also applications as you mentioned a little blurb early on uh difference between different types of sprinters you're going to have and obviously if you're not a track coach you have a, a bunch of different uh, athlete types on the team i mean if you're training like if you're like a sprints coach you're gonna have mostly neural athletes but uh you're if you're a, a strength coach you're going to have uh a variety of athletes and even within neural and muscular driven athletes there's different subtypes christian is going to really dig in to just what it is that makes athletes tick from a brain perspective how do we train them optimally and how do we get them to reach their highest potential this was an awesome episode i was like i was dialed in and so excited to listen to christian for two hours as he shared his knowledge with me and this is one that i can't imagine you could walk away from listening without having your worldview of training athletes altered significantly. So looking forward to getting this one going. Let's get on to the show. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for being on today. Well, it's been great. It's a great idea. I really like talking about training and I mean, especially with guys who are on the performance side of things. I mean, I'm a performance guy first and foremost. That That's my background. And recently I've been more on the bodybuilding side of things so it's great to talk about someone who's training and coaching for performance again yeah i mean your work has been just massively impactful on my thought process and then what i've been doing and i i, I like that you mentioned athlete and performance because uh, i would like to the first question i actually like to kind of dig yeah. in and maybe for those people who might not be quite as familiar maybe like the track and field crowd or whoever's listening and uh outside who's a little bit outside of that strength arena uh what's your background as an athlete like how did that impact you as a coach like initially and how you're initially coaching people well, actually, it's funny because that's actually a nice introduction to my neurotype, which is the, the material I, I'm really teaching a lot uh, about this, this time of year, like uh, well, the neurotyping system. Uh, I've always been someone who was insecure and uh, self-confidence issues, body image issues and stuff like that. And I really needed to be respected for something physical. So that's why I always wanted to be a great athlete, but I never had like the gifts. I don't, I don't have the height. 
I don't have the natural athletic capacity. So I, I've actually played many, many, many different sports because I always wanted to be good at something. And I was willing to work extra hard to be decent. So um, my, my, I would say that my main two main sports growing up were football, American football, uh, as well as Olympic weightlifting. So these are the two activities I spend the most time on. On football was nine years. I also coached for 10 years, um, uh, like a position coach. And, and I was also competing in Olympic weightlifting and trained as an Olympic weightlifter for seven years. So these are my two main uh, sporting activities. But I also played baseball for many years growing up. I stopped when I was 18 because it was actually hurting my golf game because I competed in golf also. And both are swings, but they are not the exact same motor pattern. Now, if you take a, 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 what I would call a neurotype 1B, the natural athletes, those who are gifted at learning skills, they can easily go from a golf swing to a baseball swing. Me not being one of those types, my brain actually tried to use the baseball pattern when doing a golf swing. I, I could not switch from one motor pattern to the other. So that, that really hurt my golf game. And golf was more of a priority than baseball. So I stopped playing baseball. But, but yeah, I, I played hockey like most Canadian kids. Uh, I ran some track when I was in high school and college, 100 and 200. Uh, was never that great because at the time, uh, I didn't like do a lot of work on speed and plyometrics and jumps. I was just doing mostly like the bro building workout in the gym. But oddly enough, when I was finished with my Olympic lifting career, I wanted to go into bobsleigh because I, I did train guys on the bobsleigh team. And when I looked at the power clean, uh, the, 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 the bench press, the front squat, which were the tests, I would score at the top of the class in, in most years. The only thing I didn't have was the sprint because they, 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 they had people run 30 meter and 60 meter sprints. So I, I started running track with my one of the guy who was on, uh, on the national team. And oddly enough, I ran uh, four, five, four, 40 electric, which is pretty fast. I was 220, considering that when I was playing football, my fastest time was five flat. And that was from zero sprinting at all, but doing tons of explosive work. Uh, every workout started with jumping, plyometric drills, then snatches and clean and jerk. And that really improved my speed. And that actually was my introduction to the world uh, of strength coaching. By the way, I did not uh, try to compete in bobsleigh because uh, one summer month, my girlfriend at the time and I went to a, this water park. And that has the, the highest water slide in Canada. And when I walked up and I looked down, I said, no way in hell. And I just walked down. So if I can't go down a simple water slide that children can go in, then there's no way I'm going to get into a bobsleigh. So that was when I decided to start coaching. I love it. Uh, yeah, they uh, maybe if you were type one, you would have went down the slide, huh? <laughs> Absolutely. Type one are competitive. They are risk takers. I'm more of a type two self-confidence issues, but hard worker because I want other people to respect me and admire me. Yeah, I love that. I like uh, you're mentioning too a little bit about the it, I couldn't help but think about like the movie Happy Gilmore when you mentioned like the hockey <laughs> and the golf like. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it sounds like I mean, you did it all, man. And uh, and I think that's that's just really cool to come from such like a diverse background to be able to kind of have those ideas and plug those in. And so before we get too much farther, I'd, I would like to get into the athletic types, especially for those yeah, people yeah. who aren't 
who might not be familiar with the different types that you've done, and then we can chat about those a little bit. So could you explain a little bit about your five types and um, how that those uh, come, about, come about? Well, first, it's always, I mean, I'm, I'm a, uh, that's also a general introduction. I'm a type two. Type two, as we will see in a bit in a bit of time, uh, are people pleaser. They are people with a naturally lower self-confidence level, but a strong desire or need to be respected, admired, and liked. So one of their main assets is the capacity to observe other people and read them. So as a coach, that was always my greatest asset. I was always great at reading how people felt. So uh, the, the nonverbal cues, the body language, uh, the expressions they were using, the tone of voice. Always, I was always great at reading how athletes were doing. Were they doing too much volume? Too, the, the, was the training too boring for them? So I instinctively always adapted the training of the athletes I was working with to the personality of the person. But, of course, it wasn't a system back then. So I was always attracted to that, of course. Um, now, the neurotyping system is something I've been researching for years. But only in the past two years, I've really been really pushing that uh, extra hard. Now, to get back to your question, I, there are five profiles I'm using. Uh, and originally, they, it, they are based on the Cloninger model, which uses uh, three neurotransmitter uh, to establish your dominance. So, for example, if you have a type 1 personality, type 1 personality is dopamine dominant. It means that they are super sensitive to dopamine. doesn't mean they have high level, although some can have high level. If you have someone with a high level of dopamine and very sensitive to dopamine, these guys are, I'm telling you, tiring to be around. Like always moving, always jumping, always talking. They never stop. They never stop. Like the Energizer Bunny. But but most of the type 1 personalities that are dopamine dominant have lower level of dopamine but are super sensitive to it, which means that they are very competitive. It means that uh, they also are on or off. So it's either all out or it's off. Uh, they have a very high level of self-confidence. They tolerate anxiety and stress really well because their serotonin level is higher. Now, so that's your type one type. So normally, the best athletes, the competitors, those who step up their game when they're competing, they are normally type one because of the high confidence level and they are not negatively affected by anxiety. Anxiety. That is really important. I believe that most people who choke under pressure, especially in technical sports or sports with a technical element or coordination element, it's due to anxiety. What happens is anxiety, which is actually an overactivity of the brain, of the neurons, anxiety creates tightness, especially in the flexor muscle. So if you have anxiety, your flexors become tight which will negatively affect your motor pattern. Just enough that your movements become less effective, less precise, and you will choke. For example, me, I'm a type two, type two B with more anxiety than most. So under competitive settings, my flexors would tighten up and I would always, I would always pull my snatch forward because I couldn't reach full extension because my hip flexors were tight. So that's an example. So the type one, because they have high level of serotonin, that serotonin can actually downregulate excessive brain activity, allowing them to reduce anxiety in competitive setting. So their technique 
is not negatively affected. Their muscle tone is not excessive under competition setting. So they are much less likely to choke under pressure. So that's why the type one, you have the one A and the one B are normally like the gamers, the, the people who perform or compete better than their training. Now you have two of these subtypes. You have the type one A and the type one B. The main difference would be in uh, the strategy they use to overcome a resistance. Now, the type 1A, they're more like they're stronger than they're powerful. That doesn't mean they can't be fast. It means that if they want to be fast, they need to build more strength reserve because their stretch reflex use is less efficient. Now, the 1B are built for explosiveness. They have a much better capacity to use a stretch reflex and they're more explosive. They also have much better motor coordination. The 1B is the ultimate competitor. The 1B will get things done just because they want to win. They want to beat your ass. So they are the extreme competitor. The 1B are the natural athletes, the most skilled athletes. Now, the reason for that difference is the acetylcholine level. Now, type 1A have lower acetylcholine level, so they have a much shorter attention span. They can't multitask. Uh, they, they, if they are doing one thing, it's hard for them to switch to another one. Their motor learning is not as good because acetylcholine plays a huge role in learning, both learning knowledge and learning motor patterns. But more importantly for us athletes, acetylcholine, is what sensitizes the muscle spindles. Now, as most strength coaches know, muscle spindles are responsible for the stretch reflex. So if your muscle spindles are more sensitive, it means your stretch reflex is both more sensitive and more effective. So athletes who have a higher acetylcholine level will have a much, much more powerful and efficient stretch reflex. So that's why these athletes, when you ask them to squat, instinctively they use a rebound whereas the the type 1a will be more like slower down slow eccentric they don't bounce and very strong up but when they squat they have that rock hard tightness body that looks like just one big piece of iron going up and down because the 1a since they don't have that efficient stretch reflex it means that they can maintain maximum tension for longer their strategy to overcome resistance to produce lots of force is to produce maximum tension. Whereas the 1B, their strategy is to use maximum impulse, maximum starting strength to create momentum to overcome the sticking point. So that's the main difference between the two, the type 1A and 1B when it comes to performance. Of course, from a personality standpoint, they will also have differences. Like the, the 1A is very vocal. He's the guy who will taunt other players on the field, for example. The 1B is more like the silent leader kind of guy with a, a very top confidence in himself. Now, that, that's for your type 1 personality. Now, these guys are all about intensity. These guys need to move heavier weights or move explosively or have skills. Basically, anything that will stimulate that nervous system. They will actually build muscle or improve body composition by doing performance work. Now, uh, if you go to the second broad category, the type 2, type 2 are dependent on adrenaline or no adrenaline. Now, no adrenaline and adrenaline is what makes you feel confident. 
It's what makes you feel uh, that you are strong, that you can do this, right? It also increases muscle contraction strength and all that stuff. Now, since the type 2 are have receptors that are super sensitive to adrenaline, well, it means that at rest, they have a low level. That's one thing you, you, your, your listeners need to understand. Uh, if you are sensitive to a neurotransmitter or a hormone, your body does not need to maintain a high level of that hormone or neurotransmitter at rest. Let's look at insulin sensitivity. If you are insulin sensitive, it means that you don't need to produce as much insulin to get the job done. Well, if you are adrenaline sensitive, it means you don't need to produce as much adrenaline. So at rest, my like I'm a type 2, at rest, my adrenaline is, is really low, okay? Uh, and when that happens, then my confidence is also very low. I have very low self-esteem. When I walk down the street, if you see me walking down the street or at the airport, or even between breaks when I'm presenting, I cannot look at you in the eyes. I cannot engage in conversation. I mean, Joe, you and I were talking before the podcast, right? And I was slurring my words. I was looking for my words. I was not using proper syntax because my adrenaline was lower. Now I'm getting started. So adrenaline is high. My confidence is high. My language is better because I have more confidence in myself. I don't, self, I, I don't have any self-doubt. So that's a type two. Type two are people pleaser. They have a low level of self-confidence, but they need adrenaline to feel confident. Now, these guys are people pleaser. They will build their self-esteem based on how other people perceive them. So that's why they will oftentimes go the extra mile to gain other people's respect. Now, they will use different strategies. For example, you have two subtypes. You have the two A. 2A are the people who are the most fun to be around. These are the party guys. These are the hoot uh, of your team. These guys always have fun. They're always pleasant. They get along with everybody because they're, they have low self-esteem, but they also have a fairly high GABA and serotonin level, which means they don't have anxiety. They don't have social anxiety. So they will be fun to be around because they want other people to think of them as, oh, that guy is fun. It's not because they're nice people, all right? There is a secret. Everybody, everybody is centered on themselves. Everybody, all right? So, but but the, the difference is that different people use different strategies to get what they need. A type 1A, type 1A will be seen as an asshole because what they need to feel good about themselves is beating people, is winning. It's being better than you are and showing you that they're better than you are. So they, look, they, they, they are assholes. But type 2A <laughs> or type 2Bs, they will be fun to be around because they want you to like them. So, hey, that guy is super cool. Yeah, the only reason he's cool is because he wants you to like him because if you don't like him, his self-esteem goes down the drain. So that's a 2A. Type 2A will also be the personalities that mimic other people. We all have seen this, right? The one guy that will mimic the personality of the most influential, influential person in a group. Okay, uh, they will. They are those who will become the best supporters of the leader in a group. Like if you're building a team, for example, the type 2A will be the best supporting cast for the leader of the group. 
but they won't lead themselves. They hate taking decisions because they don't want to, to, to not please other people. Now, when it comes to a performance thing, because they, have, they, they want to have fun, because they can mimic, because they are influenced by the leader or influenced by a strong personality, the type 2As are those who will always want to switch things up. In training, once a training stops being fun or being new, they want to change it. These guys need to change every two or three weeks. Everything works because they have an equal neurological and muscular need. So you can train in bodybuilding style, you can train in strength style, Olympic weightlifting, everything works for a 2A, but nothing works for a long time. The 2As have the highest capacity to do volume. All the type 1 athletes have a very low tolerance for volume. Type 1A, the lowest of all. Very high intensity, very, very, very low tolerance for volume. 1B can tolerate a bit more volume because acetylcholine, as we will talk later on, protects adrenaline. So they can do a bit more volume. Type 2A can do the highest volume of all. Highest volume of all, they will very, very rarely physically overtrain, but they mentally overtrain because if they get bored, they will have the same symptoms as someone who is overtrained because their brain just is stressed by doing the same thing over and over and over again. So they need variation and training needs to be fun. That's why a lot of CrossFitters are type 2A because it feels like a game. Now, type 2Bs. Type 2Bs are your ultimate people pleaser. They are all about sensation, feeling. They, 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 they have a much greater muscular component. They like to feel the mind-muscle connection. They are built for slower tempos. Now, if they don't feel a muscle working, if they don't feel in control of a movement, it, it upsets them. Now, type 2Bs, the, the, the key word I use to describe them is sensitive. So training is sensitive. They need to feel the training. Sensitive is their nutrition. They always tend to eat for pleasure. They are the most at risk of binging out because they like to feel. From a personal standpoint, these are the guys who will build that strong one-on-one -on -one relationship because they need to feel desired, loved, admired, respected, but they have more stress and anxiety because their GABA level is lower. So they don't have the capacity of the two A's to be the fun person to be around, go from one person to the other. These are people with self-confidence issues. And the way they overcome that is having one person and building a very strong relationship with that person. And then the type three, the type three is more your endurance type, although they can become good at highly technical events. Like I could totally see a pole vaulter being a type three or a high jumper being a type three, even though it, it, it's not their nature. Anything that is very, very technical and that requires patience and doing the same thing over and over and over again, it will appeal to them. Doesn't mean they will have the capacity to be a high level, but they will certainly become great at learning and coaching technique. Okay, The type three are those who are the greatest risk of being overcome by anxiety. Now, if you notice, all right, it's a spectrum like 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 3. And on that spectrum from left to right, left are the people who are least affected by stress and anxiety. And on the right, those who are the most affected by stress and anxiety. So the 2Bs are those who are the most likely to choke under pressure because the 2Bs are anxious and they are self-conscious. 
they build their own self-esteem by how others perceive them. So put them one-on-one -on, -one on that stage and anxiety floods them because they put too much pressure on themselves and they will choke. Type three are also affected by anxiety, but they are not looking for what other people think of them for self-validation. What they need is to feel structured, to feel in control. So type three are often control freaks, not trying to control other people, trying to control the environment, trying to control themselves. They are those who will prepare the competition bag a week in advance. They know exactly what they will do uh, preparing for a competition. They will follow the training program to a T. And if they take 92 seconds of rest instead of 90 seconds, it will play with their mind. They will follow that plan to death. So these are, of course, just, I mean, for training purposes, uh, we'll talk about the training variables later on, but that's just a broad stroke of the, of the five profiles. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Oh, I love it. I, that was a, that was a great. Uh, I probably fifteen twenty minutes. Just I was just sitting there taking notes. Probably filled up a whole page. But uh, just kind of following up with my train of thought in that. I, I like how you mentioned. Uh, like I was almost like chuckling to myself a little bit when you were talking about some of the personality facets yeah. of each of these guys because I was thinking about that person in the weight room that I see yeah, and yeah. that person and I, I have a, a one of my one of my um, postgraduate Olympian swimmers is like probably the like. It just a physical freak, like one of the most, if not the most explosive athlete. And he just, it's like, he just gets a kick out of the, the other sprint swimmers that he trains with. If they're doing like, like a close grip snatch with a tendo and someone got, I don't know, like 3.3 meters a second, he'll go do it and get four and just put his hands up in the air and walk away. Like, like it, it's, 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 it's like, uh, and then the same thing with the two A's and it's just like, I mean, it is knowing that just makes being a coach just that much more fun too. Cause you get to start plugging in like, Oh, this person's this, and this is—it's just—it makes it a lot more interesting and enjoyable. Yeah, and even even more than that, I mean, once you understand uh, these personality profiles, as a coach, each type also has its own personal asset as a coach. For example, uh, the type two A, the type two A as coaches, they are those who are the great, the best at making instinctive changes in training so just by looking at the demeanor of the athlete body language uh, even the, the the words they're using or how they're slurring their words they're great at reading people and at adapting so the type 2a are those who are great at adapting the training on the fly uh, they don't need data they don't need to accumulate anything they just just know what the athlete needs to do that's their strength a type 2b as a coach the type 2b is the support guy I mean, he's great at making athletes feel better. I mean, we all know that athletes are human beings. They have personal issues. They might have financial problems. They might have uh, problems with their studies. And they're because of that, they have stress in their life. They might feeling down. Well, the type 2Bs are the coaches who are great at supporting. Uh, they, they basically almost become the best friend of the athlete, almost a therapist, really. So that's their strength. Uh, the type 3 coach are the best technical coach because they love technique, they love precision, they, they study all those elements. The type 1A is the best motivator. He's the guy who, uh, I mean, the, 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 the pure like football coach caricature we see in a movie. Like, I, I don't, 
I don't get art attacks. I give them like in a like in a program, like the coaches who shout or yell. Well, the type one A is the coach who is the most vocal, but will get the most out of their athletes. Normally, they're a pretty good competition coach because they are great at raising the athlete's energy and 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 willingness to compete. Now, one B is the silent leader who's great at coaching by example who's great at being a silent force that improves the athlete confidence just by being around. Normally, if I'm building a team, I want one B's around because they, they will get imp just one look from that guy and the athlete is in confidence. Now, when you know that, you also know which are your shortcomings. For example, a type 2A, type 2A is very instinctive, but does, is not necessarily good with numbers. So you might need to have, if a 2A, don't ask a 2A to prioritize for 12 weeks in advance. That's not his skill set. It's better to have one guy who will do the programming and a 2A will do the adaptation, for example. But if you know that about yourself, you know what your limitations are. By the same token, a, a, a type 1A or 1B is not great at read, not as good at reading people. So these are the guys who need to collect more data. Like you mentioned, the Tendo earlier, uh, like collecting data there, or, or accumulating as much information like uh, heart rate variability, for example, or morning heart rate, morning blood pressure, and using all that information to make adaptation to training because they all don't have the same uh, capacity to read people as the type 2, for example. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, different types. I, I, because you hear it on Twitter or whatever all the time, people, you know, saying, oh, data's stupid, data's good. This is, you know, it's, and it all based on what that coach's uh, biochemical makeup is and how their brain works totally. and processes. We, we, we all, we all, I mean, and, and that, that's such a good point. I will go one step further. I mean, we all, I mean, we're passionate about training, right? So we will read books, we will read articles, and we will read like that one article, and the guy said, okay, if you want to get, bigger, you need to push bigger, bigger weights. It's all about progressive overload, uh, go big compound movements, don't, no need for isolation work. And the guy will make great a great case, quoting studies and stuff like that. And, and the guy obviously has great results. Then you will read an article by another very respected or very well-built well coach. And he will say the opposite. Well, you need... Uh, more variation, eating the muscle from various angles, using kind of like slower tempo, squeezing those muscles, and you will make a very strong case, uh, quoting studies and stuff like that. Now, now the reader can get really confused, but you know what? People who have success naturally gravitate toward what works for their neurotype instinctively they do what they what works for them and they, they push it to the extreme now because that's why that's the the type of training that gave them great results that's what they're passionate about that's what they know that's what they write about so oftentimes you need to question well okay that's a good point but is that applicable for me i mean if you give me like a training program uh, like 531 by Jim Wendler, for example, which is a great program, has built tons of strength on many people. I cannot follow it for more than two weeks because I get bored to death of doing the same thing over and over and over again. But for many people, it works fine. But for Many athletes will benefit from it because they don't have to think or make decisions or adaptation, which is good for them because they have to think about their sport, about other variables. So 
everything works. It's just a matter of finding out what fits your profile the best. Yeah, I, I love that stuff. I when you were saying too, I, going back just a little bit about how the different the type one, two, three, the different coaches work together. Like one coach's strength might be motivation, or one might be da- a little data, and yep. and these things. It, I had Ron McKeefery on uh, coach uh, about uh, probably about six eight months ago, and he was talking about. I don't remember all the animals. There's like the different types. There's like the lion and the otter and the yeah, there's yeah. like the elephant. It's like I'm sure you could neurotype <laughs> neurotype those uh, those leadership characteristics as well. It, it's amazing how it all Absolutely. fits together. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that psychological profiling is nothing new. It's been my, my that was actually my my both my parents' job. They were um, uh, psych, uh, they were psychologists working in human resources. So they were involved in personal selection and how to uh, like uh, dealing with issues that some groups were having or, or how to form work groups and stuff like that. So I've been raised into that milieu. So it's nothing new. The, the one thing that the newer typing system uh, has different is I explain why. Because, I mean, for example, type 1A have the lowest volume tolerance of all. I mean, I, I train a, a, an Olympian who was a type 1A and you could do at the most, and I'm pretty sure you work with athletes like that, who could do at the most six to nine work sets in a workout. Not, not per exercise, in the whole mm-hmm. workout. So maybe three exercises, three work sets. More than that, all the stress markers would be through the roof. And the next day, you would not want to train at all. And that's because a type 1A is very sensitive to dopamine. And once dopamine is high enough to trigger those receptors, super competitive, super motivated, lots of willpower, okay? But at rest, they have a low dopamine level because they are super sensitive to it. But if they do too much volume, what happens is, or too much intensity or too much work, what, it, what happens is that they, they start to produce tons of adrenaline to get the workout done, okay? And when adrenaline is produced, you need dopamine to fabricate adrenaline because adrenaline is fabricated from dopamine so if they overproduce adrenaline then they crash their dopamine when dopamine is crashed you have no willpower no motivation and you're just lazy okay uh, a friend of mine who's a competitive i mean I've, that's the athletes who they are no good for a week after a competition you know they're type 1. It's, it's pretty straightforward. He probably even more type 1A. Those who, because okay, a friend of mine is a type 1A powerlifter. He competes in bench press only because he hurt his back. So in, in a competition, he will do at the most four heavy lifts, okay? Another big, big, big workload, right? Well, after a powerlifting contest, he cannot train. He doesn't want to train for five days. And he will eat shit for five days. The reason is that eating crap increases dopamine because of the pleasure response. Okay, so that's a, that's a subconscious way of increasing the dopamine that was crashed by overproducing adrenaline during the competition. Now, the type one A are those who are the greatest risk of that. These guys can oftentimes crash for. I mean, I've seen sprinters couldn't get back to regular training for. 14 days after a competition where they ran three sprints. That's because their dopamine crashed completely, okay? Now, the type 1B also cannot do a lot of volume, but they can do a bit more volume because acetylcholine protects adrenaline. See, acetylcholine uh, shares 
some of the functions of adrenaline. Namely, it increases muscle contraction strength and also blood flow by increasing vasodilatation. So acetylcholine helps adrenaline do its job, which means that for a certain task, they don't need to produce as much adrenaline to get the job done. So in a way, since a type 1B also has low dopamine, but is producing less adrenaline because the acetylcholine protects it, they can do a bit more training volume. That having been said, under competitive settings, they will also be negatively affected. Probably they won't have any willingness or motivation to train for three to five days after a competition because the adrenaline is much higher than in training. Um, that also affects the pace of training, for example. Type 1A should train at a much slower pace to avoid adrenaline increase, for example. Um, now, they also tolerate stress better because they have higher serotonin. Here's the thing, okay? Uh, anxiety and stress go hand in hand, obviously. Now, anxiety is an overactivation of the neurons. Your brain basically goes too fast. That's why when you have people who are anxious, they cannot get to sleep because when they're trying to sleep, their brain is on and on and on and they are overthinking. They just can't switch the brain on off and they can't sleep. That is what anxiety is. Anxiety is nothing but overactivity of the brain, making you think more, think faster, which is good. It's a, it's a survival mechanism. But when you want to rest, it's not a good thing. Now, the two neurotransmitters responsible for calming down the nervous system, bringing that, in, that eye activity down to manageable level is serotonin or GABA. Both can are, are a neural inhibitor. They decrease neuronal activity. So let's say you are competing or you are training uh, while well, you are amping up neural activation by adrenaline or dopamine, then you need serotonin and GABA to bring yourself back down afterwards. Now, it, it, if you are someone who's anxious all the time, it means that you don't have the resources, serotonin or GABA, to decrease neuronal activity once it's been triggered. So as a result, the slightest stress will keep your brain overactive for a long time. I mean, you can have a, a, a test at school and it will keep your brain going on and on and on and on and on for hours. You can have one fight with, with uh, your girlfriend and it will stay with you for eight hours because you don't have the serotonin and GABA to decrease neural activity. And what happens in that case, you are making stories in your mind because if your brain is going fast, you're going to use that increase in neural power to make up stories. That's why people who are anxious, they always make up those crazy stories in their mind about this is going to happen to me, this is going to happen to me, this is going to happen to me. And that is totally a matter of not dealing with anxiety properly, which means that their brain cannot be shut off. Now, the type 1A and 1B naturally have more serotonin level, which is why they oftentimes are on and off personalities. When they compete, it's all on. But afterwards, they're really relaxed. I mean, you know how sprinters are, right? Hey, dude, are you going <laughs> on the chill? And they're walking slowly, big gesture. By, by the way, that relaxation, okay? Moving slowly, wide gestures. 
that's a sign of being relaxed. Relaxed is a sign of high confidence. People who are working with short, short stumpy steps, or you can see that they have a very high muscle tone and they, 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 they walk like a block, they don't move that much. Well, that's a sign of anxiety, which is a sign of lower self-confidence or lower serotonin, for example. So, so that's, uh, the, that these are things you, you need to consider when you understand uh, how the neurotyping, uh, how the neurotypes work. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, that that's fascinating stuff. It makes you what you just said makes me think a little bit of a, a sprinter I used to work with uh, back when I was coaching at Wilmington College. And like the other athletes would literally watch this guy like walk around campus and it was just like the slowest thing you've ever seen. But then when it was time to compete, it was on like that guy could roll like it's, um, the, the yeah, difference I'm, I'm was amazing. Sure that when you walked in either on the track or in the gym, it, w- it would take him forever <laughs> to want to get uh, get started. I mean, you're just like sl- like very slowly warming up. He's almost like it's almost like he's asleep on track. But when it's time to go, it's time to go. The, the reason is that these guys have very high serotonin, so they're super relaxed. They are great at fighting anxiety. But because of that, it's hard to get amped up. Because to be amped up, dopamine has to exceed serotonin. Since they have low dopamine, they have high serotonin. They need a lot of physical activation to get amped up to compete. Now, that's why these guys will do like, they will do a few jumps, a few uh, like warm up drills, footing drills, and it looks like they're lazy, but all of a sudden something just clicks. When it clicks, it's because serotonin has activated the receptors enough to overcome that serotonin level. Yeah, I think every, almost every sprint coach probably gets like, I, I, this is my memory as a track coach is the sprint coaches are always getting on their athletes in like the drill section or about oh, do this drill faster, like do that. Yep. ace get better, have more intent. And then, but then as soon as they actually are racing, it's just completely different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah because, because those first drills, they are using them just to amp up their nervous system to activate. Now, ideally, and the thing is that oftentimes sprinter will do lots of stretching or self myofascial release work before the warmups. Now, when you do that, you actually activate the parasympathetic system, which actually relaxes them, which is not what they want. They want to be amped up. Now, they should they, they should do the, the mobility work afterwards to calm themselves down, but not before, because it will actually makes it harder for them to get into the zone. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I'm a I'm a one B. Uh, I'm a, I'm 95% confident I'm one B, and I've yeah, yeah. I did stretching before. I mean, I ditched it because I heard it wasn't good, but I've never felt I've never felt good doing that. But I always love doing it afterwards. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, even like even lately, even the foam roller stuff, I never never foam roll before I work out. Never stretch. Never. Yeah. I'd rather do something that's like fun and exciting and and tries to get me amped up so that makes perfect sense exactly like jumping i mean that's why when i was uh training as an olympic weightlifter now of course i'm not a 1b but most of the olympic lifters are 1b's or 1a and but the coach was a national level coach so he he was used to working with those top level athletes and we always started the workouts with 15 minutes of jumping Uh, that was the best way to amp uh Amp up ourselves. Now, the only people who will benefit from doing foam roller or any other form of self myofascial release and stretching before the workout would be the type three, because the type three, because they are over anxious, right? type three at the highest level of anxiety of them all. And anxiety 
increases two things. It increases tightness in the flexors, and it also increases the perception of pain. Two things that will decrease workout performance. So the type three actually will benefit from doing mobility work and uh, self-myofascial release before the workout and even between sets of an exercise, for example. Whereas the other type, it will decrease performance. Not because, as some people think, it will loosen up the stretch reflex or whatnot. It's, it's really more a matter of that. Uh, it, it will relax your, your nervous system. And for a type 1, it, it goes against what they need. And for a type 2, it might also decrease the adrenaline they need to perform properly. So it's not something you, you want to do. Yeah, I think that's such awesome information, especially because it's like, Coaching these days is just—it's often so canned and robotic. And okay, you know, everybody does foam roller between their sets, and every—it's and not not respecting the the neurotypes. I uh, before we get any farther, too, I actually wanted to go back, and yeah. you were saying how you were a two B, and I was thinking, uh, and maybe yeah. we could talk about this a little bit later. But you had mentioned that you you had gotten yourself to a four or five, and you didn't really do a yeah. lot of sprinting. Uh, do you, uh, do you think that for you, but being a less neural type? Like you actually needed to do more muscular work to hit your full potential, because because track coaches and performance coaches argue about this or have their opinions all the time on you know my athletes don't lift weights, my athletes do lift weights, like and and uh, and how that all integrates, and I'm sure there and obviously there's a lot of ways to do it, but uh, do you have um, some thoughts on yourself as a two B and and that training protocol and your your speed there? Well, I, I, I will say that those who are naturally built to be explosive need less strength work for a type 1b you would not need to have the same amount of strength slow speed strength to be explosive look at kim collins for example uh, kim collins barely did any strength work and he was a sub 10 second sprinter uh, and he was like what a buck 54 or something like that so no muscle mass on his body at all didn't need that much strength work uh, but you have sprinters like uh, a guy i trained with sometimes like bruni surang the, the, the Canadian uh, sprinter who was like 200 pounds ripped to shred and was super strong. Even Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson squatted 600 pounds for sets of five. Of course, they were half squat, but they were still like decent range of motion to be an impressive weight. Now, Ben Johnson was more of a strong sprinter than an explosive sprinter because he was a type 1A personality. And when you look at the, the training program he was doing, it, it reflects that even though it was instinctive, I mean, he didn't do any explosive lifting, even though some of Charlie Francis's athletes were doing power cleans. Ben Johnson never did power cleans. He very rarely did plyometrics. He, he did mostly squats, reverse leg press, bench press. That were, that were his strength movement. And that he didn't really vary didn't go with high reps, didn't do volume at all. Very, very low volume, but he was super strong. Now, two, like 1A, 2Bs are not built for explosiveness. They can become fast and explosive, but they need a much bigger strength reserve. So, for example, when I, when I, I ran the 454, uh, my, my best front squat was 480. My best back squat was 600, full Olympic back squat, no gear at all. Uh, my best snatch was 315. My best power clean, I, I did, actually, I did from the hang 155 kilos for five reps. So my, I had an amazingly high strength reserve because I was not naturally explosive. But by getting that strength reserve up, I was able to jump, a vertical jump 40 inches. Uh, dump, uh, at five foot eight with short arms, I could dunk a basketball without a running step. 
and I ran, I ran pretty fast. Um, but that's not something that is natural for me because when I played I, uh, college football, even high school football, uh, when I was like 18, 19, 20, even though I had been training since I was 12, the fastest I could run was five flat because I, what I was doing was mostly bodybuilding work. And at the time when I was playing football, my best squat was 375. And I ran five flat, five one. When I ran a four, five, four, my squat was 600. So there's a direct correlation there. Whereas I know some people who are super fast without needing to be really, really strong. These are the guys who have a higher level of natural acetylcholine. These are the guys who have a better natural stretch reflex. So the, when you have acetylcholine, you both have better stretch reflex, but also much better motor coordination. These guys can pick up any sports and almost don't not practice and be good at it. When I played golf, I mentioned I played golf. When I played golf, I would arrive at the country club at 5 a.m. I would practice for an hour. Then I would go play 18 when I, at 6 a.m. Then at noon, but when, I, when I was finished by 18, I would eat, then practice for another hour, then go play a nine hole afterwards again. So that was basically what I was doing six days a week. My, my father was the president of the country club, so I was able to do that. But I was also at uh, group classes. I mean, I was spending at least, I would say, 12 hours a day practicing golf. And when I was not practicing, I was reviewing videos, I was looking at, at like manuals, I was reading articles on theory of swing, and that was barely enough for me to be able to hang with some of my friends who were playing maybe three times a week and were the best players, natural athletes. So yeah, the two Bs can eventually become pretty good. Uh, they're never gonna be excellent, they can be pretty good, but the, for be explosive, they need more strength reserve, like the two, the 1A. The 1A also need more strength reserve, but they actually enjoy the heavy work. I mean, that's one thing. People always think of me of, as someone who loves lower reps, loves heavy lifting, Olympic weightlifting. I hated every minute of it, to be honest. I mean, when I was Olympic weightlifting, I really did not enjoy it. The only reason I started Olympic weightlifting was because I needed to be admired for something, okay? That's, that's what I mentioned earlier. I started out playing baseball, and I was not really good, so I stopped, and I, I focused more on golf, and I was, all, all of course, playing football at the, at the same time. I was pretty good in football because I was probably the only guy at the time in high school who was training with weights, and I was willing to sacrifice my body just to be good enough to be respected. So I, I, I played pretty good. But once I, w I moved to college, I was short, I was not fast, so I was not a good player. Uh, so I trained hard, and I realized I was actually better at lifting weights than playing football. So I figured out, well, I I'm going to be respected by competing in something where I can lift weight. There was powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting. And truth be told, at the time, my bench press really, really sucked. Uh, so I said, well, I'm not going to try powerlifting because I'm not going to be good right now. I was looking at the scores of Olympic weightlifters because back then Olympic weightlifting was on its lowest level of popularity in Canada. I mean, we didn't have CrossFit. We were not making good progress on the international scene. So very, very few people were actually Olympic weightlifting. So even with the weights I was lifting as a football player, I would have been competitive on the provincial stage and maybe qualify for nationals. So that's the only reason I started competing in Olympic weightlifting because I wanted to be respected and be good at something. I remember 
uh, after um, the East Canadian Championship, which is not a very high level of competition, but still a national level competition. Uh, after the competition, I, I went home and I, I played a game of pickup basketball with uh, my best friend at the time, who was a pretty good basketball player. He was like six foot six and like a, a pretty good player. And we were playing a, a game of pickup basketball, and he, of course, he's killing me because I'm five foot eight, right? And I said, well. He said, well, and he said, well, you know, some people are better than others. He said, yeah, but some people are number three in the country. Some people are just playing pickup basketball. I, I, I finished third in that national competition, but it was still a pretty weak competition. But even though by the weight I was lifting were not super high, I placed high. So that was I wanted to be respected for that. And even after that, when I was uh, I stopped Olympic weightlifting, I was. Uh, still continuing lifting heavy because I, I thought, well, that's what got me respect in the first place. But honestly, I felt bad all the time. Every day I would come back home crushed and trashed. Didn't want to train, didn't want to do anything. I was an asshole to everybody I knew just because mentally I was drained. I was depressed. Now I'm training more like a 2B, like more mind-muscle connection, but I still keep some heavy lifting in because I need that. Then I'm, I'm, I'm much happier. I'm feeling better. Uh, so that, that's an example uh, of how training can actually impact uh, your well-being. There was a lot of yeah, really great things that you mentioned there. And I think that something that the, not only the track and field, but sport uh, performance community, a, a lot of great information for that. And you were talking about, yeah, that 1B, 1A sprinter. And I was just thinking even about like Christophe Lemaitre uh, from France, like the only mm-hmm. Caucasian man under 10 seconds. And we yeah, did it. Yeah. His squat was like, I don't know, like 185. or <laughs> And yeah. then they got him lifting and he couldn't break 10 anymore. And he's like that prototype 1b i mean obviously i don't know what the lifting program was like but uh and then uh i think ben johnson too i a buddy of mine ryan banta uh who's a a big sprint coach written a great book on it had i think he called up ben johnson and asked him like did you squat the week week of when you ran nine seven or whatever and i think he had said yeah i squat on wednesday and i ran it on friday or saturday (laughs) like heavy heavy squats yeah it's just so cool how so many people are wired differently and that makes coaching fun. Like it's, it would be boring if there was one way that worked well for everybody. Like it would make our jobs much, yeah. much boring. You know, type, boring. Just to get back to that example you mentioned, like type 1A. Type 1A can basically lift 90% weights almost every day and not crash as long as the volume is super low. I mean, Ben Johnson's volume was amazingly low. I mean, workouts lasting about, well, the workouts were fairly long because he was taking like five minutes between sets. But type 1A needs longer rest intervals because they don't want adrenaline to go up at all, right? So it's not that they don't do any circuit training, don't do complexes and stuff like that with a 1A. 1B will respond. 1B and 2A will respond amazingly well to complexes, but 1A will crash on that. But yeah, for example, look at Olympic weightlifting, for example. You have the Bulgarian school of thought. I mean, when I was Olympic weightlifting, if I tried the, Olymp- the, the Bulgarian system, which is basically uh, working up to at least 90% of the competition lift every single day. Uh, I tried that. Of course, I tried everything because I wanted to be good. But a- after a week, I was coming home almost crying. I'm, I was devastated. I was crushed and trashed. It was impossible for me to do that. But the type 1A can do max and max and max day in and day out day in and day out they can sustain that intensity without crashing on the track same thing they could run like 92 95 percent sprints three times a week and they would not crash as long as volume is kept super low but if you take a type 
2A or type 2B, uh, or even worse, a type 3, if you have them run 95% three days a week, even if the volume is low, they will crash. So it's really different. And by the same token, you take a type 1A and you have them do one bodybuilding session, they will take a week to recover from that. <laughs> even though, in theory, heavy lifting is harder. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did German volume one time. I because I, I, you know, this was when I was like 26 or I, I think 26 or 27, and and I was like, oh, this gets you, you know, really strong and da 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 and. And I'm a 1B, and I, I did one workout, and I was on the floor after for like five yeah. minutes, and I felt weak for like two weeks, and I never did that again. Exactly. Like, no, no, ex- exactly. That is exactly that's exactly correct. That is probably the best example you can give. Because when you think about it, German volume training, it, it, it is volume, but it's not like I've seen bodybuilding workout with tons more. I mean, I've, I once given, I once gave a type 2B. So by those who, are, who love bodybuilding work, uh, give them a German volume training and they complain that it was too little volume. But if you put a 1B, for 1B, it's the worst possible approach because 1B, they can't do that much volume. But more importantly, they need variation. If they do it, it's better for 1B to do three sets of three exercises than 10 sets of one exercise. They will just lose their mind repeating the same thing over and over and over again, especially in the range of 10 reps, which should go completely against their neurotype. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the more I, I learn about the neurotyping system and what drives and makes each one tick, I was like, that was definitely the worst workout I ever could have done. Like, I've, <laughs> I've done some ones that were not good for me, but that was definitely the worst. And so it was, yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was interesting uh, for that one. And uh, so you're mentioning uh, a little bit about Olympic lifting too and, and your experiences with that and your neurotype. And um, yep. one thing I, I believe I've heard you talk about and uh, I'd like to go into is like a little bit of frequency. I, I was listening recently to uh, Max Aida on Barbell Shrugged and talking about he was working with a. I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong, but Ajibadev and and those guys working out multiple times a day and and yeah. how high they can tolerate the frequency. And I could show you talk a little bit about that frequency of training spectrum throughout the yeah. types. Well, first of all, we, we must understand that unless you're the biggest genetic freak in the history of mankind or on drugs. Uh, or both, ideally both, uh, you cannot, volume and intensity are inverted. I mean, if intensity, if frequency goes up, volume per session must come down. It's, you cannot do both fairly high volume and high frequency. Your body will crash, okay, unless you are total freak. Now, personally, I'm a frequency guy. Now, I prefer higher frequency of work, uh, especially for natural athletes. Because, especially if we look both at the neuromuscular component, the neurological component, the more often you practice contracting a muscle or doing a movement pattern, the, the more ingrained that pattern will become. And don't, don't, get, you don't, don't forget that contracting a muscle, recruiting muscle fibers, that is a motor skill. Okay? The more you practice recruiting a muscle, the more you practice activating muscle fibers and making them twitch fast, the more you become efficient at it. So right from the start, from a neurological standpoint, frequency beats volume every time. 
Now, from a muscle building perspective, because even though we're dealing with athletes, it's still important to have enough muscle mass to have the engine to be strong, for example. And for increasing muscle mass, I believe that for the natural athlete, uh, frequency is more important than volume because training is, in the natural athlete, the one occasion where you are triggering protein synthesis, which is muscle building. Now, of course, if you're on drugs, the drugs put you in the increased state of protein synthesis 24-7. If you're natural, that doesn't happen. So you need the actual training session to start the protein synthesis process. So if you're training three days a week or training one muscle once a week, chances are that you won't build a lot of muscle. Because even if you were to do lots of volume, you would have too much time where you are in involving, losing the adaptation because you, you have to wait seven days to have that, that stimulus again. So I believe that for natural athletes, frequency is more important than volume. Now, I don't say that volume is not important because you need to reach a certain threshold to stimulate muscular adaptations uh, to trigger muscle growth, for example. So, so you do need enough fatigue on the muscle fibers to trigger muscle growth. Now, if you're dealing with athletes who don't want to put on weight, then frequency will be volume every single time no question yeah that's that actually makes a lot of sense in that uh like the difference between the bulgarians and the russian weightlifters like the bulgarians yeah. did no muscle building it was just it, neural yeah. all day every day Only and, neural. <laughs> and then, and then yeah. the russians had to train a little less frequently because they did more muscular work Correct. Co correctly and chinese same thing but uh, but if you talk to, if you look at the neurotype because uh, what is frequent for type 1a will not be the same thing for type 3 for example uh, type 1A and 1Bs are those who are the best built for frequency for, for two reasons. The first reason is they handle stress better. Okay? They have higher level of serotonin, so they will have less anxiety and less cortisol release from training. So they can have twice daily sessions, even three daily sessions, easily because they will have that, a little bump of cortisol release during the training, a little bit of neural activation, but because of their serotonin level, everything goes back down according to regular level really, really fast. Whereas if you have a type 3 who's always over-anxious, who's over-producing cortisol, well, they cannot do multiple sessions a, a day as much because they will constantly over-produce cortisol and not recover. On top of that, type 1A and 1B need more frequency feel good and avoid doing crazy shit okay because training is especially in high intensity training i mean if you're doing like steady pace cardio it won't trigger dopamine release but if you're doing anything explosive anything heavy anything skill related anything competitive you are triggering a dopamine response now, the type 1, 1A, 1B, they need dopamine. That's what makes them feel good. I'm a type 2. Adrenaline makes me feel good. Type 1, dopamine makes them feel good. And they become, they, their receptors are so sensitive that when they release dopamine, they become addicted to their own dopamine. So they need it, okay? So if they, every time they train, they are getting that dopamine fix, okay? Now, if they don't train... Uh, for example, they take two days off. First of all, they will feel like complete shit. <laughs> a type one who doesn't train for two days feel like total crap. 
unless it's re recovery after uh, after a competition where they're crashed. But in normal setting, have a type 1A or 1B rest for two or three days in a row, complete rest, they will go crazy. And oftentimes what happens is they might get do some crazy shit. The type 1A will often go to a club and get into a fight. Uh, they might start eating tons of junk food. Or they might actually turn to drugs. Or they might become sex addict and have two or three different mistresses. Because all of these, or they might ride a motorcycle 200 miles an hour. Well, that's not possible, but you get my drift. Because all of these things also increase dopamine release. If they're not getting it from training, they will try to get it elsewhere because their brain is addicted to it. That's why you see all these pro athletes during the off-season getting caught for taking drugs and driving, get caught fighting in a club, uh, eating their girlfriend, doing crazy stuff because they don't get that dopamine rush from competing and they need to take it elsewhere. That's the real reason why Abajayev at the Bulgarian athletes train three or four times a day. He mentioned, well, it's because after 45 minutes, your testosterone level goes down. Bullshit. These guys were on more testosterone than, than the Mr. Olympia competitors. So it's, that, that wouldn't make a difference. The real reason, and that's something that Antonio Kraschev mentioned when he uh, moved to the U.S., was it was Abajayev's way of controlling his athletes because otherwise they will engage in uncontrollable behavior self-destructive behavior when they would go out of town and having them of course abajev didn't know about the neurotype so in his mind having more frequent session was only a way to fatigue his athletes but in reality what he was doing was uh, like selecting like an artificial selection of type 1a athletes and giving them exactly what they need very frequent dopamine release so there is no doubt in my mind that if schedule permits uh, a type 1a will do better training multiple times a day. A type 1B can also do that. But 1A, it's even better because the 1A cannot do volume at all. Like 6 to 9, 12 work sets per workout, 35, 45 minutes workout after the warm-up or the activation, no more than that. After that, they crash. So if they need more volume, they have to increase frequency. There's no way around it. Now, if you look at the type 2, the type 2, 2A can do frequency because type 2A also deals with stress pretty well. But when you have the 2Bs and 3s and you increase frequency too much, then they will start to overproduce cortisol. So I still believe that frequency is king, but the difference is that high frequency for a 1A might be 12 weekly workout, whereas for a type 3 or type to be, it might be five weekly workouts, for example. Maybe once a time upon a time, you will do a two uh, twice a day session, but not that often. Yeah, that that the frequency thing is really fascinating to me personally because I had it backwards for a lot of years, and what got me off probably on the wrong foot uh, was I bought a jumping. It was actually the first good jumping program that I that I bought. It was just like uh, as it were, all the other ones were all these high reps. This was like you know do depth jumps and this and. But the thing was, they're like the best power lifters, you know, squat heavy once a week and then rest till they're good again or something like that. And so you do the same thing with this plyometric workout. And what I found is that it eventually really caught up to me because I, I would do the workout and then just be sitting on really bored for a number of days. And yeah. it worked for me really well when I was playing basketball every day and, and you know, doing going to open gyms and 
and at least I had something to keep me stimulated. But then when I tried that thing again, when I wasn't playing basketball and wasn't being stimulated daily, I would go into these workouts really flat and wonder. And I was like, "What is happening here? This doesn't make it. Yeah. Like, it just was confusing it, it, to me." Exactly. I mean, I, when I was uh, when I was in St. Louis, and we work, were working with lots of uh, hockey players, uh, we were using at the time the typical Polkin split, which was uh, like lower body on Monday, uh, arms on Tuesday. Well, don't ask me why a hockey player needs a harm day. But he had a harm day. <laughs> uh, Wednesday was off. Then Thursday was uh, chest and back. And then Friday, we did conditioning work, for example. Now, they would take the whole weekend off. And what we saw was that every Monday, they had the shittiest leg workout. I mean, they would get into it maybe like 35 minutes in. But by that time, the squat and deadlift variation were gone. Uh, they were at leg curls or something like some some minor stuff like that. And they always had a great arms workout. At first, we thought well, maybe because they go out partying during the weekend, but really it, it was pro- probably not that because most of the players we had were the older players with families and stuff like that. And I, my theory was that it was a neural activation thing. So we we started just switching out the, the Monday and Tuesday session, like putting arms on Monday and legs on Tuesday. And now, lo and behold, they had a great lower body session. Now, of course, it was a neural thing. I didn't understand what was going on. It's a matter of dopamine level. I mean, you have the the weekend. You have these athletes who are probably type 1A or type 1B for most part. So low dopamine and high serotonin. You have, have them have two days of complete rest. What happens is their dopamine stays low. And they probably, like, indulge in bad food, for example. And that will, like, and that will increase serotonin even more. Because, for example, when you have stress, oftentimes you will eat comfort food because it increases serotonin. And when they come in on, on Monday, it's really hard to get amped up because to be amped up, dopamine has to exceed serotonin. So that's the reason why they had a shitty workout on Monday. By changing the order, it worked better. But no, ideally, uh, a type 1 would never have two days off in a row. I mean, it doesn't have to be like all-out workouts, but they need to do something. Now, I like to use neural charge sessions, for example. Neural charge sessions are very short workouts, 20, 25 minutes of only explosive exercises done to non-fatiguing level. The goal is not to create a training effect. The goal is just to amp up the nervous system. I call that uh, 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 interrupted coitus workout. When it starts to feel good, you have to stop. So maybe like sets of five jumps, you, you do three sets of five jumps, three sets of medicine ball chest row, uh, three sets of light explosive Olympic weightlift, and then call it a day. Just doing something very, very violent and explosive. And it's not the speed of the movement that is important. It's the intent. You have the intent to be violently explosive. Not fast, violently explosive. That is that intent that will spike dopamine and will help that level, that uh, type 1A or 1B feel good. I actually like to use those workouts maybe five hours after a very draining workout to re-increase their, their, um, their, their neurotransmitter levels. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. 
Yeah, I, that's awesome. That's actually the neural charge is something that I've uh, kind of been using in that regards for like uh, swim sprinters this year. And it, 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 whereas typically I would have done like a bodybuilding circuit, like a flush, yep. quote unquote, if you will. I switched to the neural charge and, and the guys like it a lot more. And I, I But, but, but the, the, the bodybuilding like flush kind of workout would work great for a type 2B. Like a type 2B, I would not use a neural charge. It would respond better to like muscle i wouldn't call it bodybuilding work but like more like um, like mind muscle contraction work so lots of band stuff like uh, any exercise is done with resistance band because it, it to me it what makes me feel the muscles better and also it has the less the least amount of stress because the stretch position normally is uh, under less uh, less load so so it's a lot less stressful on the body it recovers much faster for me yeah, that that two days. Oh, so, uh, that two days off thing too is really interesting to me because I look at like how track coaches schedule their week, and and a lot of times it's like Monday is always the high neural day or whatever. But I found or at least my coaching setups. I didn't have my athletes come in on Saturday when I was coaching track, and I found that if I if we did that on Monday, it wasn't very good. So I usually just did like a little weightlifting and tempo or whatever, and then did the yeah, big day yeah. the next day. So it kind of like puts the pieces together and as how or why that was good, <laughs> and why the track coaches many, make their kids come in Saturday. Many of the good coaches have like come to the, these conclusion instinctively through trial and error, but it's nice to understand why it works. Oh yeah, yeah, it's huge. It just dopamine too, like just getting dopamine. Because when you're the when you're an athlete, uh, I mean, for me, there was nothing worse than going into a training session and you know expecting some big jumps or, or sprints or lifts or whatever, and just being really flat and, and having no idea why. And I now I'm, I'm a little less serious competitor than I used to be, but just understanding how dopamine, the flow of dopamine gives me a lot less like I get way less upset than I used I used to get really upset <laughs> I mean it was it was pretty serious back back when that dopamine would crash no, no, I can imagine I can imagine now, I, I have not lived it because I'm not a type one but a type one are very it, it, it is it would be like me when I don't have that adrenaline I feel like just super bad all the time cranky all the time and it's not it's not fun yeah, yeah, I see. I see it a lot. I was thinking, yeah, with track too. A lot of uh, coaches will have athletes do a workout on Saturday and, and take like a Thursday off or something instead of just going five days a week. I was like, yeah, that probably works a lot better because yeah. then you don't have the two day weekend, and then you don't you you can do something probably more explosive on Monday and and preserve some quality there. And it never made sense to me anyway because most of the athletes they are oftentimes college athletes. The weekends is actually when you should train the most because you have zero stress. To me, it just doesn't make sense to not train on the weekend. But even, or if you are an average Joe, well, the weekend you probably don't work. It doesn't make sense to me that, okay, I'm not working, so I'm not training. Well, that's where you should actually put the best training sessions in because that's where you don't have any external stress that's going to impair your performance. Yeah, and too, like I'm sure uh, a lot of athletes that will make bad decisions on the weekends, nutritional decisions. Yeah, and it amplifies probably what's going to happen to them on Monday. Absolutely, and face it, most athletes compete on a Saturday anyway. So, so you should actually put a training session on the day you're gonna. You want to program your body to be good on the days and time you're going to be competing. 
Oh, yeah, I, I definitely agree there. I think, yeah, that rehearsal is a, a massive facet of, of being successful. Uh, I want to go into another uh, kind of little training question. You had, you had mentioned a little bit before, Chris, and you were yeah. talking a little bit about uh, complex training potentiation. I actually asked you this on the forum a little while ago. I was really intrigued by it uh, because I've seen little shades of this. And uh, But what, what athletes do, like like when we're talking complex, like weights and plyos, weights and sprints, French contrast, yeah. How does that fit throughout these types? Well, to me, those who will respond the best to any type of contrast. Uh, it could be Bulgarian contrast, could be Russian contrast. I mean, with two exercises, could be so. Like, even the Canadian contrast I use with five exercises and are five points in the strength curve. Uh, those who will respond the best to these methods are, are, are those who have the more capacity to multitask. And that would be the type 1B and the type 2As. Uh, the main reason is that the higher acetylcholine level allows them to switch their focus from one thing to the other. Now, I don't have the capacity to multitask. I'm more of a type 2B. So if you put me, if you give me a superset, for example, if I do uh, antagonistic pairings, if I do bench press and chin-ups, for example, well, one of the two will always suffer because I cannot concentrate on both. If I'm focusing on the bench press, when I'm moving on to the pull-ups, I'm still in bench press mode. Even if I force myself, okay, I really want to be focused on that chin-up thing, it will take me out of the workout because I don't have the capacity to multitask because my acetylcholine level is fairly low. Now, someone who has high acetylcholine levels will have the capacity to multitask and also have better motor control they can more easily switch from one exercise to the next. Now, I'm going to give you an example, and then I'm going to explain why it's relevant. Uh, for example, if I start a workout, let's say, with incline bench press, okay? And that's said I do five sets of six incline bench press, and I finish with 300, for example. Well, then I move on to the flat bench press. You would think I would be able to start with 300 because I just did five sets with 300, with the incline press, which is a press, the warm up, the, the, the muscles are warmed up, the joints are prepared, and it's a harder exercise than a bench press. Normally, you should be 20% weaker on the incline press. So 300 should feel very light on a bench press. But I actually need to start at like 185 and then do 225, 265, then 300. Because I don't have acetylcholine level, my brain, exactly when I explained the golfing analogy earlier, my, when I'm the first two sets, I'm bench pressing. My brain is still trying to use the exact same motor pattern it used when I was doing the incline bench. Incline bench, so I cannot go straight from one to the other. So if you have me do a complex where I'm squatting, then vertical jumping, then the vertical jump will always suffer because I'm I will use the same pattern, so slower speed strength and more strength production at the lower angle then at the upper angle, then my, my, my jumping will suffer somewhat. So it won't be as effective. It's the same same reason. Now, if you have a type 1B who has a high acetylcholine level, then not only will the complexes be doable, they will likely be more effective than regular training. Simple as that. When you have a physical capacity or a neurological capacity and you are not using it, your brain feels demotivated. So if you have the capacity to multitask, you will naturally be more attracted to workouts where you have several tasks to combine. 
So that's why German volume training for 1B will be really boring and really tiring mentally because it's always the same thing, whereas your brain, it wants to multitask. So it, what will happen oftentimes if you have a 1B trying to do German volume training or a very repetitive program, uh, midway through the set, it, his mind will wander. He will start to think about something different. He will want to talk to other people because he needs a different stimulus. He needs something different. Whereas we have, if you have these people do complexes, uh, then it will fit what their brain wants to do. Now, you don't necessarily have to do complexes. You can do just antagonistic pairings. So bench press with face balls, for example. That's something that, but adding that feeling of not always doing the same thing, that's great for a type 1B and a type 2A. Uh, the type 1A, it's better to focus on one task at a time. So if I want to do, like uh, using, if I want to train several physical capacities in a workout with a 1A, I will use series instead of contrast. So maybe three sets of squats, then I will go three sets of depth jumps. Then I might go back to three sets of jump, of squats. But I, I don't want to have like one and one, one and one, one and one. I want to, when I'm focusing on one movement, I am doing work sets for that movement alone, not doing alternating things. Uh, type three, type three, actually what they do better at is doing all the sets of one exercise in a row, so no complexes, but having technical practices between sets. So they could do, for example, or, or they could actually do energy systems work. So for example, they could do back squat and then just do some light goblet squat as active rest. And of course, they would maybe like rest a minute and a half, then do goblet squat, minute and a half, then do back squat, for example. That could be done. Or they could do active rest, back squatting, then maybe just light technical running. Or biking, for example, just because they have the they have the energy capacity to do that, and it would actually help them stay loose to reduce anxiety and will actually improve lifting performance. So it's all a matter of understanding what each neurotype needs. Yeah, that I that's just gold right there, and it has I I mean it explains so much of the differences. I mean, some people love complex training, some people yeah. love, uh, and even just uh, with the swimmers that I've had that are type three, I just just even throwing a few extra sets of battle ropes in in their workout yeah. has been But that's it. That's help. energy yeah. system that works. I mean, that that to me, it's not the same as a complex in itself. I mean, doing something that is more energy system or something that allows them to keep their mind off of the stress of lifting, that will work for type 3. Yeah, it's like a distraction almost. That's exactly, interesting exactly. to think about yeah, it that way. Well, it's, it's, yeah, exactly. They want they, The number one thing, okay, uh, I have like one sentence that describes uh, the basic training principle uh, uh, for each type. Uh, type 1A is the, the improved body composition by becoming stronger. So that means that strength is what is the most important for them. Type 1B improves body composition by becoming more powerful. So it's also focused on strength, but strength using more acceleration, stretch, reflex, and stuff. Uh, by the way, with type 1, the type 1B are the type of guys that they will always use a slight cheat, even on isolation exercise. It was just a very slight momentum during lateral raises or curls. And you know what? That's perfectly fine. I let them do that because it's their nature. If you have a 1B and force them to use a very strict, concentrated, slow tempo form, you will kill their motivation. 
it will actually they will actually feel like they are dying from the inside and they will actually get weaker what they need is to use that stress reflex i'm not saying to use bad form or, or super like intense swinging but just enough to get that acceleration done even the isolation work should be done with acceleration while maintaining control of course uh, now the type 2a those sentence that describes them is everything works but nothing works for a long time and the biggest problem for 2b is mental fatigue from the repetitiveness of the workout that's why most elite crossfitters are either 1b's or 2a's one B is because they have super skill. They they have um, they they don't have to practice the, the muscle up, the snatch or whatnot. They can they can spend months without doing them and they still got it right. And they are they like going from one exercise to the other. They will have problem with lactic acid though. Type one B tend to have more problem with lactic acid a bit. Uh, now the two A, two A will do great on CrossFit because they have the highest tolerance for volume. And it's always different. So mentally, they like that. Now, uh, the 2B, the one sentence that describes them is they get stronger by becoming more muscular. So these are the guys who need more isolation work or more assistance work to become stronger. Like a type 1A, Bulgarian lifting, snatch, clean and jerks, front squat, they get strong. They get balanced. They don't need all those assistance movements. Where you have a 2B, you need like that one big lift, then many, many assistance exercises to build up all the weak points. The type three, the sentence that describes them is they can only push hard enough to progress when they feel in control of the movement. Basically, they are a victim to anxiety. So any method that relaxes them during the workout will work. They don't need to, to get amped up. They need to be relaxed when they're training. If you amp up a type three, it will shit in the bed. It will have bad performance because you increase anxiety even more. You know, you know the inverted U hypothesis curve, right? The inverted yeah. U curve. The type three are already on the upper right portion of that curve, of the, that extreme right portion of the curve. You don't need to amp them even more. You need to relax them. So that's why they do better with anything that will put their brain at ease, put the switch on off. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I think that has implications for not even just on the in the weight room, or it's like even on the for sport coaches, <laughs> seeing a type yeah. three and understanding how to to modulate that with how you're setting up practice. Uh, yeah, that's why that's why a type one a type one A coach will always have a problem coaching a type three athlete. Because a type 1A coach, very vocal, very motivating, that will just cramp the type 3, will just create more anxiety. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I see so many things you said, too. I mean, I've, I, I have type 1A athletes who hate it when I have a temp. If it's like 505 tempo, that's like death to them. They would rather exactly. do anything. And, and I used to think, oh, I'm being a great coach. I'm making them dial in the technique. And now it's kind of like I just I just – kind of avoid the exercises where they would hurt themselves or, 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 you know, obviously you have to have good technique, but it's kind of, I've just steered yeah. the workout to let them do a little bit more of that because they, oh, exactly. they need it. And not only that, just the way you're coaching also, for example, if you're coaching a type one, especially one A, but one B can be like that, but really one A, uh, these guys, the one A respond really well when you challenge them, almost when you make fun of them, you know, you see what I mean? Now, these guys respond really well to that. But if you do that to a type 3, 
then you will or a type 2b that's even worse because type 2b needs to be respected admired liked. so if you make fun of him to motivate him it will actually kill his confidence type 3 will increase anxiety so it won't work to increase performance at all uh, remember i was the first group of athletes i started working with when i was younger were uh, hockey players and figure skaters and when i was training the hockey players uh, of course i was more comfortable because I, mean, I was a former football player so it's pretty much the same similar environment so i would actually challenge the athlete make fun of them like I'm, i was their buddy when training so and that always worked well so I'm training these figure skaters. They, they even train in their skating dresses because the, the gym is just up of the skating rink. Anyway, on a Saturday, one of the girls uh, I'm coaching is competing at nationals. Uh, she was a favorite to make a podium. That was her first year as a senior. The previous year, she was national champion as a junior, and she was favorite to make a podium. And uh, I, I'm at my buddy's house, and we were playing uh, – poker and drinking and all that stuff and at like 7 p.m i just walked out and go to the living room to watch figure skating which is actually kind of weird when you are a bunch of guys drinking beer and playing poker <laughs> anyway so the athlete i'm working with comes up and she has the worst performance of her life like she fell four times on the ice and i'm i'm there and i'm almost crying i'm i'm, I'm type 2b so i'm very emotional very sensitive um so the next week when the skaters are, are back in training, I made probably the biggest mistake I ever made as a coach. I said, okay, we're going to work on abdominal and core strength because some people here tend to fall a little bit too often on the ice. It, it was three months until she was able to talk to me again and six months until we could have a good working relationship again. But that's just me using the worst possible coaching style with a type 3 athlete although it would have been a great approach for a type 1a athlete of course i didn't know that at the time i was like 19 or 20 so it's it was like really really uh far off of what i'm know now yeah i mean how much at 19 or 20 i mean <laughs> how much experience do any of us have it's uh just how we, how we put those together over time but that's a, that's a good a great anecdote uh yeah again just a lot of good stuff for any coach uh, regardless of whether you're a strength coach or whatever your medium is uh, i'd like to move into a couple more of uh some of the some of the specific means and methods actually before i get to isometrics i did want to mention too like uh, the idea of like lifting uh like a 1a might would they be a good person to do like heavy lifting possibly before their sport like if they're a swimmer or if they're a uh, a track athlete as opposed to complex like and and they probably couldn't tolerate that for very long like maybe like two three weeks at a time would that be some would you agree with that well of course it always depends on the time of year though uh, if they are in the off season uh, the type 1a would actually be potentiated by that I will, uh, as long as the volume is kept low uh, then the heavy lifting before the sports practice for type 1A and even though type 1B, it will potentiate performance. Uh, I would still be conservative with that approach, like in the competitive season. Not so much for uh, performance issues, but maybe for injury prevention issues. But but yeah, there's no question that for type 1A, uh, heavy lifting before uh, sports practice will enhance performance. Uh, for a type 1B, it would be explosive lifting. 
although they can still do heavy lifting, but I would do more something like uh, 75, 80% power snatches or power cleans or speed squats or plyometrics or throws. Stuff like that would potentiate uh, a type 1B more so than heavy lifting. The 1A would respond really well to be being potentiated with heavy lifting, yes. Yeah, I, I I like that a lot. That's uh, it makes me think a little bit. Uh, Dan Paff, track coach, has a story about like uh, Sotomayor, the world record holder in high jump. The first yeah. time he went eight feet was doing like heavy, heavy triples and snatch in the morning, and then uh, in the afternoon he broke the world record. So he's like, okay. Oh, and it's common with Olympic weightlifters; they they will often train the morning of a competition. Yeah, the, I, the best the best competition I had as Olympic weightlifter. Uh, it was an uh, unplanned contest. It was uh, a club meet, uh, and I had trained in the morning, and one of the athletes I was training was competing. So, and I, at the last moment, I decided to compete also, and I did my best performance, even though I trained heavy in the morning. And when you look at the Bulgarians, oftentimes they will have a heavy session in the morning, but not all out, like 90%, and they will max out six hours later. I mean, for a type 1A, it works really, really well. For a type 1B, I still prefer the explosive work, though. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that one. Uh, another training question I had is, uh, and this is actually one I had later in the questions, but the more I like look at it, I'm like, I'm really interested, especially just hearing you kind of talk about the different types and and you know mental factors. But uh, like looking at like single set protocols, like high intensity yeah. training, Doctor Yesus is one by twenty. Uh, yeah. What's your take on the types and and single versus multiple set protocols? Well, yeah, and it, it depends, as you mentioned, on, on the neurotype. First of all, I mean, we must make the distinction between a true one-set protocol, like like the one times twenty by Dr. Yeses. You do that since the intensity is very low. You don't need to warm up to do that set. Maybe like you do a few practice reps to get the movement pattern down, but may, maybe one warm-up set. But you really only have like that one set for that exercise. Whereas if you look at more of a high-intensity training program, you might have two, three, or even four warm-up sets before the actual work set. They, they don't qualify it as work sets because they're not all out. And if you look at the high-intensity dogma, for them, a work set is going to absolute muscle failure. So you, you look at Mike Menzer, for example. I mean, a friend of mine, of course, Mike Menzer popularized the heavy-duty training, one set to total failure for, for each muscle. Now, uh, my friend was actually trained by Mike Menzer in, in the, the early 80s, and he saw Mike train. And when Mike was training, he would do like five or six warm-up sets before that one all-out set. But even those five warm-up sets were like maybe 80% effort, like a, like a seven on the RPE scale, for example. So maybe not all-out set, but it, it still has a physiological impact. It still recruits fibers. It still creates some muscle fiber fatigue, which will contribute to the training effect. There's a big difference between doing a one all-out set on a fresh muscle and doing that one all-out set after having created some pre-fatigue with three or four warm-up sets. First of all, the neural activation will be different. Uh, you still have some residual fatigue on some muscle fibers. So now that one set to failure will actually involve more muscle fibers because of the fatigue level forces you to use more fibers. Now, if you are doing that one set to failure without any preparation work, then, of course, you don't have the same fatigue. So you might not recruit as much muscle fibers, but you're also not potentiated. The neuromuscular, uh, the, the neuromuscular junction 
are not synthesized to being recruited. So the muscle fibers might not be recruited as well. You need one, two, three sets for that. Now, if you look at a protocol like the one times 20, uh, to me, that's, well, I, I, I've actually done it. I mean, I, I've, it, it's, I, I, I almost laughed when I saw it in uh, your questions because uh, I, I've done that for a few weeks when I was on, on tour in Europe. Uh, just because I, I really wanted to experience it myself because it goes against what I personally like do, to do and I wanted to feel what it would feel like. Like the one set of 20, what I like is that it for young athletes, it will build tendon resiliency. To me, that is the main benefit of that protocol. Uh, now, Dr. Yeses mentions that, well, that 20 reps allows you to have a high amount of practice for the movement pattern. Well, you can get the same thing by doing several sets of lower reps. Now, the argument is that you get the adaptation for the, the capillaries and stuff, and I believe that. And I believe that there's a place for it, but for most neurotype, it will not appeal to them. Like a type 1A, anything above eight reps, you will just kill the motivation. Type 1A should do any mostly one to six reps per set, um, if you want to do more volume work, then it will come in the form of respas uh, or um, something like clusters uh, or even triple cluster, like three reps, three reps, three reps. They will respond much better to that than one high rep set. It just, they need to feel heavier weights to feel motivated. Now, the type 1B, well, it works a bit better for 1B because with a typical 1 times 20 program you have like 20 exercises in a workout like 12 to 20 exercises and type 1b's are those who would do the best on that because they are the capacity to do several tasks at once and they have the capacity because as i did choline switching from one motor pattern to the other without having any negative impact if you give that to a 1b like me which typically, in theory, it might work because the type 1B might actually enjoy sets of 20 because of the muscle pump they will get. But the 2Bs will not have the capacity to do as many exercises and stay focused. Okay? The type 3, type 3 need to be in control. They need to perfect a movement pattern. So for a, a type 3, I prefer to use a much smaller number of exercises and more sets to practice and practice and practice and practice that movement. Because the sooner they are in control of an exercise, the harder, the sooner they can start pushing it hard. If they have to practice 20 different motor skills in a workout, it will take them a lot longer to master that movement pattern. Uh, so really, and the 2A, it will work, but it will work for two weeks. Everything works, mm -hmm. but for a long time so to me it's it's a good program for a beginner it's a good program for those who don't do not yet have the structural adaptation mostly as far as the tendons and capillaries are concerned so i think that for them the one times 20 program is a good approach but once you reach past that and i understand that the one times 20 program uses other set recommendation like once the athlete gets older but in my opinion once you get uh, like holder, uh, the neurotype should train more according to their neurotype. And that means that for type 
1A, it has to be heavier than the protocol. For type 1B, it has to be heavier and focus more on explosiveness. For type 2A, it needs to change every two or three weeks. For type 2B, they need, well, it would actually work, but they need more volume, more sets to be able to really get that max, max muscle contraction feeling. And the type 3, they need fewer exercises so that they can focus on mastering each movement pattern to the limit. So that would be my 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 comment on the one times twenty. Now for the rest of the one set protocol, the one set protocol works. I've used it with many clients. I've written programs about it, uh, like the um, T Nation. There's a best damn workout for natural athletes. What I like with one set protocols is that it minimizes the cortisol release, because cortisol. Well, the main function of cortisol is when you're training, it is to put your body in a physical state and it can do the task you need to do to fight that stress. So it, it mobilizes energy, it maintains stable blood sugar level, and it also inhibits uh, the, both the digestive and the immune system so that you can spend most of your resources to the muscle and, and brain fighting that stress. But the most important thing for us is cortisol increases the mobilization of energy and maintain stable blood sugar level. That means that the more carbs you need to burn in a workout, the more cortisol you're going to release because you need to mobilize more carbs, more, more glycogen. So the more volume you do, the more likely you are to produce cortisol. So, of course, the benefit of the one-set protocol is that you minimize cortisol release from training, which is a good thing and especially important for natural athletes who are of the 2B uh, type, for example, or 2A, or athletes who have tons of stress from other training variables. Now, the issue is that for the one-set protocol to be effective, you need to reach maximum muscle fiber fatigue in that set because you don't have the benefit of having that volume to gradually accumulate muscle fiber fatigue. And as Dr. Zatsiorski mentioned, a muscle fiber that is recruited but not fatigued is not being trained. So if I'm training that one set, but I'm not giving an all-out effort on that one set, reaching failure or even beyond, then you will not get maximum muscle growth. And of course, one set, in my opinion, regardless of the number of repetition, is not sufficient to get optimum neurological adaptation. It's not a matter of repetition, it's a matter of frequency. So if you only do one set of 20 reps, sure you did 20 reps, but how many of those reps you did with 100% focus? A type 1B, at about eight to 10 reps, you will just get bored and will just go through the motion. So mo half of the set will be spent not learning the movement pattern. Type 1A, it's even worse. After six reps, he's getting bored out of his mind. Type 3 will actually be able to do that, but they need more than one set to get maximum practice and feel good. They will actually, with a type 3, I like to do twice as, as many warm-up sets as work sets. So if they have three work sets, I have six warm-up sets because they need all those warm-up sets on a big compound movement to feel confident enough to be able to push themselves hard. So as you can see, uh, in theory, yes, okay, 20 reps, um, I have 20 occasions to practice the movement pattern. It's the same thing as four sets of five. No, because on the set five, four sets of five, you can be mentally focused uh, on those five reps. 
And then you're gonna say, well, yeah, but you, if you're working with a like a young kid, you're not gonna use a five RM or like 85% weight for sets of five. You're gonna, you're gonna screw them up. Yeah, but who says that you have to use 80% when using five reps? Even though the chart says that you should be able to do five reps with 85%, doesn't mean that if you do sets of five, you need to use 80% or 85%. You can use 65, 70%. If you're in a motor learning phase and focus on acceleration, for example, focus on controlling the movement, maximizing tension, it's, it doesn't need to be necessarily that if I'm doing low reps, I have to go super heavy. It's a matter of how long can the athlete maintain maximum attention and focus for. I mean, if you have a type one, they will get bored after 12 seconds. If you are a type two, they can maintain attention for about 30, 40 seconds. And the type three will can main focus for 10 years. So that will never be a problem. So, yeah, they can do higher reps and they, they won't get bored. That's because of the, they naturally have a higher dopamine level. That's why they make great endurance athletes, because they can run for three hours. They won't get bored. I'm going to give you an example. Okay, my, my wife is a 1B, great natural athlete, former gymnast. She can not train for six months and then she will power clean 165. So she's a natural athlete. She was preparing for a few years ago for the police academy. And one of the tests was a cardiovascular test. So she had to practice running. Uh, so we, I, I was forced to go to Colorado for three months for a project. And she came with me, but she still needed to practice. And at first she was not motivated because my wife is one of those natural athletes that when she is out of her natural setting or if she doesn't have a really good reason, she won't train. She just naturally has it. So to make her not forget about her test. I said, I'm, I'm going to go running with you. And now, okay, I was like 245 at the time, at about 240, like more bodybuilding than anything with an excessive tan and the cardiovascular of a caterpillar. So really, really bad shape. I was like super huge, but in a really, really, if I walked up a flight of stairs, I would be out of breath for about 30 seconds. And my wife was doing CrossFit. She was a great athlete. So when we went jogging for the first time, I kicked her ass which doesn't make sense because she's in great shape. She's a great athlete, but she got so bored after five minutes that her motivation, your willingness to train just, just went down the, the, the drain. So because of that, she just was not able to keep up just because she lost motivation, but she could do a CrossFit workout lasting 60 minutes all out. She has the physical shape, but when you get mentally bored, it just affects your performance. So if you get mentally bored because you have to count to 20 for a set, doesn't matter how logical it is, you're just not going not, not to get great performance. Yeah, you always, I always kind of wondered, speaking of mentally bored, like I, some of my track sprinters who are really fast and you throw in the meat in the 400 and they'd be fine, but if you ask them to do it in practice, they just look like they were in pain. Like, yeah, like, yeah. like, like, and you wonder how much that was just mental, like mental pain and boredom and like if they had stuff to do along the way, maybe they'd be more into it. But Well, it, it's two things. It's two things, really. First of all, okay, the, the type one, they, they abhor like repetitiveness, like doing the same thing for an hour or, or for even even a, a minute or two minutes. It's really hard mentally. That's why they, they, they love, they maintain maximum focus for 12, maybe 20 seconds, okay? But they are so competitive 
that they can actually force themselves to do it in competition because they want to beat the other guy. But in training, they don't have that same competitiveness, uh, and that's why they, they just won't do it. Second thing is type 1B are those who tolerate lactic acid the worst. So in a competition, they can force themselves to do it. But in training, that lactic acid will just be hell on them. So they won't be able to tolerate it, and they, they, don't, they don't want to do it. Oh yeah, you could. Yeah, I, I remember when I was in grad school. I my VO two max on the cycle ergometer was like thirteen points lower than on the treadmill because I just my legs were destroyed and I couldn't yeah, exactly. get any output. Exactly. It was really crazy. Exactly. Type one. I had one one CrossFit girl I worked with, amazing athlete. She was a former national level gymnast. Uh, she was a national level Olympic weightlifter. Uh, great CrossFit athlete, but her big problem was lactic acid tolerance. So uh, she would actually she had pretty good cardio. So when the wads were like chippers of like 25 minutes, she would do great. If the wads were less than three minutes with several skills, she would do great. But anything like in the like three or two even minutes up to five or six minutes, she was gone. She was never able to do them because and in training, okay, I was only coaching her on the Olympic lifts, and she actually she was dropped by three coaches we're doing our general programming because they all had the same approach of, okay, you suck at anything in like a two, three, four minutes all out zone. So that's what we will focus on during training. And she was just not mentally capable of doing it. So they all thought that she was weak minded. So they, they dropped her. In fact, it's just that for her lactic acid caused symptoms of overtraining in instant if you have them let's say for example you put it on a, on a put on a roar and you said well do a thousand meter as fast as possible she is done for the rest of the day it, it has that much of a negative impact on her so that the type 1b's are those who are at the greatest risk of uh, overtraining of or suffering from that lactic acid yeah, yeah, that's I mean, it makes all the difference in the world when you're trying to individualize those things. And, and that's yeah. such a great, great point. Uh, Chris, Christian, last question for you. And just uh, any so along this topic, I mean, I, I'd like to just allow you to share a little bit about what you're doing. I know you have a new certification out. Yeah. Uh, if people want some more information. Uh, could you talk about that or any books that you'd recommend on this in this arena or, or recommended reading? Well, I've, uh, yeah, I've done an uh, online certification. It's actually been launched two days ago at uh, tabarmi.com. It, basically, I, it's uh, 12 hours of material where I explain all the neurotypes, uh, how they work, how they are, why they are like that. And I also give uh, also recommendation on how to program training sessions, training weeks, training blocks, and macro cycles. Uh, I'm already working on a level two, which will actually be all about how to program. So how to adapt, for example, in theory, a type three is built more for endurance sports. What happens if you have a client who's a type three and he wants to be an Olympic weightlifter? He wants to be a sprinter. How do you approach your training? Because they are not built for explosiveness. How do you adjust the training? If you have a type three and you want to make him good at utilizing the stretch reflex, how do you do that? So it's a, that will be level two. Uh, now, as far as books on the topic, well, honestly, I can't really recommend any. I mean, the book by Cloninger would be good, but really, it's all about learning physiology, neurophysiology, and then trying to make those connections. 
why uh, a person is like that. Any thing that about personality types would help. But but really, I, I, there is not one book I can recommend on that. The only recommendation I can make is, and that's always what I say when I give the seminar, is that what I want you to do is every time you read a book, every time you read an article, try to figure out, well, to with what personality type will that work best? Is, it, is that article applicable mostly for type 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, or 3? And how would I adapt the material to the other neurotypes? That is the best way, in my opinion, to learn how to use the information about the, the neurotyping. Of course, on my website, tebarmi.com, I have several videos explaining all those neurotypes, and these are free. Yeah, of course, the certification is not free, but you have videos that are free. I have articles about, I, I'm taking, for example, clusters, response, drop sets, and how to adapt these methods to your, each neurotype, for example. What, what is the best cardio method for each neurotype, for example? So it's uh, every time you read something, try to just change your perspective. Don't analyze it from only your own, but analyze it in the context of with which neurotype this is best suited to. Yeah, I love it. I and I, I do agree. There's there's not really any books that have put any things together anywhere close to what you've done. And so I really appreciate what you're doing, Chris. I mean, it's been it's just been an awesome learning experience for me. Uh, and thanks uh, thanks for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. It was was really fun. And just like with, I'm like that, right? I, I, every time I write an article, I mean, I always suck on conclusions, and that, that, that that's the same. Like my no. Just to explain the concept even more, like now I know it's done, my adrenaline is down, so you can see I'm slurring my speech a bit more. Because I'm a type two, I need adrenaline to function properly. Now that it's down, I'm looking for my words, I have a bigger accent. So that's just an example of the newer type, but it's been great. Actually, my jaw hurt, so that might be a good thing. That does it for another episode. Thanks for tuning in with us today. I can't imagine that there really is a better way to spend two hours of your time in terms of learning about human performance and listening what Christian had to say there. That's just such awesome stuff. It's pushing the industry forward. And I, I there's really not a much better feeling than knowing that you can help more of your athletes reach their highest potential. So just so so much thanks to Christian for being a guest for today's episode. We'll be back next week with a brilliant young strength coach in Justin Moore of Parabolic Performance, and I'm really excited to get you that one. In the meantime, please visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, KBOX, Freelap, GymAware. They got it all, and just such a great company doing awesome things. Also, if you haven't done it yet, I really would appreciate uh, leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you're listening to the podcast on. Would definitely appreciate that. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs>